Well, hey everybody, I'm Adam Shell, the pastor at Melbourne Heights, and welcome to our sermon podcast. As this episode drops, we are just a couple of days past Christmas, so I hope that you and yours had a very merry Christmas this year. And in this episode of our podcast, we are wrapping up our Christmas sermon series at Melbourne Heights. Over the last few episodes, we've been talking about the fact that the coronavirus could not cancel Christmas. But in this episode, we're going to be talking about something that can. Something that can wipe out the good news of Christmas if we're not careful. So let's get right into this week's episode. So during my sermon last week, I told you that my favorite Christmas story is the Charles Dickens classic, A Christmas Carol. And I know that I'm not the only one who loves this particular Christmas story. With more than 70 different big screen and small screen adaptations of this story, there's a pretty good chance that you look forward to seeing at least one version of A Christmas Carol every single Christmas. Now, maybe you look forward to a Mickey's Christmas Carol, which is the first version of this story that I remember seeing when I was a kid. And I have to tell you that I still enjoy watching Mickey Mouse and Scrooge McDuck and some of Disney's most recognizable characters bring this story to life. Or maybe you prefer the Muppet Christmas Carol, And although there is definitely something that is endearing about Kermit the Frog and the rest of the Muppet Gang's version of this story, I have to admit that hearing Michael Caine sing at the end of this movie still seems a little bit odd and out of place to me. Or you may prefer some of the more traditional versions of this classic story, like when Patrick Stewart played Ebenezer Scrooge in a 1999 television version of A Christmas Carol. Or if you are really old school, you might still be blown away by Alistair Sims' portrayal of Scrooge way back in 1951. Or maybe you prefer some of the more non-traditional takes on Dickens' tale, like the one that Bill Murray gives us in the hyper-violent and profit-obsessed entertainment world of the 80s in the movie Scrooged. But for my money, nothing can beat the book. So... Every Christmas, I like to curl up on the couch and take a trip back to Christmas Eve in Victorian England. And I love to spend just a few hours with Ebenezer Scrooge while the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and yet to come transform the life of this curmudgeonly character. And that really is the part of the story that keeps bringing me back to this book year after year and Christmas after Christmas. The part where Ebenezer Scrooge finally understands the lessons that the three spirits have been trying to teach him. The part where Ebenezer Scrooge's life is changed completely. And that finally happens at the end of Stave 4. And just by the way here, Charles Dickens calls his chapter Staves, like a stanza in a song, in his book to play up the idea that this story is really a Christmas carol, a story or song that celebrates the birth of Jesus. But anyway, at the end of stage four, Scrooge is with the ghost of Christmas yet to come, and he sees what his future holds if he doesn't change his ways. Ebenezer Scrooge sees a future where he is dead and buried, a future where no one grieves his passing, a future where people are relieved to know that he is finally gone. And this is the tipping point for Scrooge. And from this point forward, his life is going to be transformed. And Scrooge promises the ghost of Christmas yet to come that I will honor Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all the year. I will live in the past, the present, and the future. 
I will not shut out the lessons that they teach. Charles Dickens goes on to tell us that Scrooge was better than his word. So Ebenezer Scrooge honored Christmas in his heart. Ebenezer Scrooge kept Christmas all the year. But what about us? What about us? Do we honor Christmas in our hearts? Do we keep Christmas when December comes to an end? You know, throughout this Christmas season, we have been trying to remind you that in spite of what may be happening in the world around us, that Christmas isn't canceled. But right now, I'm not really worried about what's happening in the world around us. Right now, I'm worried about what is happening inside of each of us. And that's because there is nothing, nothing that a novel and even potentially deadly virus can do to cancel Christmas. But if you and I don't honor Christmas and keep it all the year, we can. We can cancel Christmas if we don't keep Christmas throughout the year. We can cancel Christmas if we don't keep Christmas throughout the year. So that's what I want us to talk about today. I want us to talk about how we can each keep Christmas throughout the year. And to help us do that, I want to do what we have done every week throughout this Christmas season. I want us to take a closer look at part of the story of the very first Christmas. And the part of the story that I want us to take a look at today, it comes from Matthew chapter 2. Now, the book of Matthew is the very first book that we find in the New Testament. And the New Testament, it basically tells us two major stories. The New Testament tells us the story of Jesus' life, and it tells us the story of how our faith in Jesus grew and spread throughout the first century. And the book of Matthew? Well, the book of Matthew, it tells us the first kind of story. The book of Matthew is going to tell us about Jesus' life, and that includes the story of Jesus' birth. But Matthew tells us a whole lot more about the surrounding characters in the story than he actually tells us about the birth of Jesus. And I want you to pay attention to how these characters respond to the good news that Jesus has been born. So let's take a minute and let's see what Matthew has to tell us. We'll start reading in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Here's what Matthew writes. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in the territory of Judea, during the rule of King Herod, Magi came from the east to Jerusalem. They asked, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We've seen his star in the east, and we've come to honor him. When King Herod heard this, he was troubled, and everyone in Jerusalem was troubled with him. So these verses in the book of Matthew, they tell us about the characters that I want us to pay closer attention to today. These verses tell us about King Herod, and they tell us about the Magi. But these verses don't tell us a whole lot about these characters. So let me take a few minutes right now and tell you a little bit more about King Herod and about the Magi. We'll start with King Herod. Now, from what Matthew just told us, we know that Herod is a king and that he is troubled by the news that Jesus has been born. And it's really not that hard to figure out why Herod is troubled by what the Magi tell him, if you really think about it. When the Magi tell Herod that there is a newborn king of the Jews, Herod is troubled because Herod is the current king of the Jews. 
And if there is a new king in town, well, that means that Herod's days as king are numbered. But what if I told you that there is another part of this story that we've been missing out on when we've looked at this story for years? And what if I told you that this part of the story makes Herod's reaction to the wise men's message a little bit more surprising? Let me explain exactly what I mean. So King Herod, he isn't just the king of the Jews. According to one early historian, Herod was also Jewish. It was said that Herod was a descendant of a prominent Jewish family that came back to Israel after the Babylonian exile that had occurred about 500 years earlier. And based on some of the work that Herod did while he was king of the Jews, it can actually be argued that Herod took his faith seriously. And that's because Herod's greatest claim to fame, aside from being the king of the Jews when Jesus was born, was that Herod renovated and rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. And saying that Herod renovated the temple in Jerusalem, well, it's kind of like saying that Walt Disney built another park out in Florida after he finished up Disneyland in Anaheim, California. You see, before Herod came along, the temple was a relatively small building that was still about the same size as the tabernacle that you can read about in the book of Exodus. But when Herod rebuilds the temple, he doesn't just rebuild the temple. Herod builds up all of the area that surrounds the temple. And the whole project becomes so elaborate that it took over 60 years to finish the work that Herod started. Now, I think it's safe to say that anybody who is willing to put that much time and that much effort and that much energy and that much money into rebuilding a temple probably knows a little something about their faith. And let me explain why that matters. It matters because one of the most basic beliefs that the people of Israel, the, the Jews, have had for centuries. And that's the belief that God will send a new king who will restore the kingdom of Israel for good. We commonly refer to this king as the Messiah. So when the Magi come and they tell Herod about the newborn king of the Jews, they aren't really telling Herod that there is a threat to his throne. What the wise men are telling him is that the king that every Jew has been waiting for, including Herod himself, has finally arrived. The king that will set the people of Israel free and restore their kingdom for good has finally come. The Magi tell Herod, that the long-awaited Messiah has arrived. So Herod? Herod should be excited. Herod should celebrate this good news. Herod should go running out the door of his palace to go see this baby as quickly as he possibly can. But that's enough about Herod for right now. So let's take a couple of minutes and let's talk about the Magi. Now, the verses that we read a couple of minutes ago, they tell us a few things about the Magi. First, these verses say that the Magi have seen the star of the newborn king of the Jews. Now, I don't know about you, but when I look up at the stars at night, I can't even find the Big Dipper. And I wouldn't have known about the Christmas star that was in the sky last Monday night if it wasn't all over social media. So, the fact that the Magi can tell that the newborn king of the Jews has come simply by looking up at the stars, well, it tells us that these people know a whole lot about stars. Now, next we learn where the Magi were when they saw this star. 
we're told that they were in the east. But what exactly was east of Israel when Jesus was born? Well, it was the Persian Empire. So we know that the Magi know a lot about stars, and we also know that they are Persian. And there's one last thing that we'll learn about the Magi here, and that's that they have come to honor the newborn king of the Jews. Now, the word that we translate into honor here probably isn't the best translation, because the word honor just sounds like something that anyone would do if they were going to meet a newborn king. But there's more to this word. The word would probably be better translated as worship. So the Magi have come to worship or to pay respect to a deity. So this tells us that the Magi are also religious, along with knowing that they know a whole lot about stars and that they're also from Persia. And if you dig a little bit deeper into who the Magi are, you'll find that they're not just religious, they are actually priests. So the Magi were priests from Persia who studied the stars. And when we know that, tells us so much more about the Magi. As priests, the Magi would have been highly respected and very powerful people. These people would have held important positions in not only the religious, but also the political affairs of their empire. And a little bit later on in the story, when we hear about the gifts that the Magi bring with them when they visit Jesus, we also learn that these people were extremely wealthy. So the Magi are respected, they are powerful, and they are rich. These guys have everything that the world tells us we could possibly want. Okay, now that we know a little bit more about the Magi and a little bit more about King Herod, let's get back to the story and let's see if they will keep Christmas or if they will cancel Christmas. We'll pick back up in verse 4. Here's what it says. He gathered all the chief priests and the legal experts and asked them where the Christ was to be born. They said, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what the prophet wrote. You, Bethlehem, land of Judah, by no means are you least among the rulers of Judah, because from you one will come who governs, who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the Magi, and found out from them the time when the star had first appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search carefully for the child. When you found him, report to me, so that I too may go and honor him. When they heard the king, they went. And look, the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them, until it stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother. Falling to their knees, they honored him. Then they opened their treasure chests and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Because they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they went back to their own country by another route. So this is everybody's favorite part of the Magi story. But it also shows us whether they will keep Christmas or try to cancel Christmas. And when the Magi finally make it to Jesus, what do they do? They give Jesus gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. But did you notice what they did before they presented their gifts to Jesus? The Magi did exactly what they told us they would do in verse 2. 
The Magi fell down on their knees and they worshipped Jesus. The Magi fell down on their knees and worshipped Jesus. And they did that because they knew who this child is. I already told you that the Magi were priests who studied the stars. And in their faith tradition, the Magi believed that when they saw a certain celestial sign, which we commonly call the Star of Bethlehem, that a promise of their faith was coming true. You see, the Magi would have believed in a supreme deity, a god amongst all the gods, that was opposed by a great evil. And when the star of Bethlehem appeared, it would have been a sign that the final Savior had come. The Savior who would defeat evil once and for all had finally arrived. So the Magi spent years traveling to find Jesus because of the possibility that Jesus had come to change the world forever. And when they found Jesus, the Magi kept Christmas by worshiping Jesus. But that's not exactly what Herod does. So let's get back to Matthew's story and see how Herod responds. In verse 16, we're told, When Herod knew the Magi had fooled him, he grew very angry. He sent soldiers to kill all the children in Bethlehem and in all the surrounding territory who were two years old and younger, according to the time that he had learned from the Magi. So in this part of the story, Herod hears the news that the long-awaited Messiah has been born. This is the news that Herod and all of his people, the people of Israel, have been waiting centuries to hear. But instead of celebrating the news of the very first Christmas, Herod orders one of the most atrocious acts of violence that we find in the entire New Testament. Instead of celebrating the birth of Jesus, Herod orders the execution of every baby boy in the area. How could he do that? Well, to answer that question, let me tell you a little bit more about who Herod was. Herod came to power in a tumultuous time in Israel's history. Israel was under Roman rule, but there was one prominent family called the Hasmoneans who continued to fight for Israel's independence. Now, at the time, Herod was the governor of Galilee, and he struck a deal with the Roman Empire to ensure that the Hasmoneans would be destroyed and that Herod would be crowned king. By the time that Herod turned 40, he had been appointed the king of the Jews by the Roman Empire, but only after he had conspired with Mark Antony to have the leader of the Hasmonean family, a man by the name of Antagonus, executed. One of Herod's first Axis kings was to have 45 of Antagonus's supporters executed. And then, in a shrewd and calculated political move, Herod actually married into the Hasmonean family to alleviate the threat of a future rebellion. But that didn't do a thing to alleviate Herod's growing paranoia. For, as William Shakespeare once put it, heavy is the head that wears the crown. So, it wasn't long before Herod began having his in-laws executed. It began with a nephew, a nephew that Herod himself had appointed to be the high priest. He had that nephew drowned because that nephew was becoming a little too popular for Herod's taste. Then Herod moved on to his grandfather-in-law, his mother-in-law, and even his own wife. And even after all of these executions, 
Herod remained afraid that his family was out to get him throughout the rest of his life. This leads him to change his will seven different times, appointing a different heir to his throne in each one of those wills, and to have his three eldest boys executed to keep them from trying to claim the crown of their aging father. And those are just the broad brushstrokes of Herod's life. There is no telling how many people died just so that Herod could sleep a little bit easier at night. So you could call Herod cruel, you could call him manipulative, you could call him power-hungry and paranoid, and all of that would still be an understatement. And that's without a doubt why Herod doesn't hesitate for an instant to order the execution of innocent children when he hears the news that the king of the Jews has been born. Herod knew. Herod knew that there could only be one king of the Jews, and he would stop at nothing to make sure that that king was him. So that's why Herod responds the way that he does. Herod tries to cancel Christmas because Herod was only worried about himself. Now the question that I have for you today is who do you want to be like? Do you want to be like the Magi? Or do you want to be like King Herod? Or to put it a different way for you, do you want to be an Ebenezer? Or do you want to be a Scrooge? You see, in A Christmas Carol, Charles Dickens actually gave us a hint of how the story would turn out before it really even began, when he told us the name of the main character in this tale. When Charles Dickens called him Scrooge, Dickens showed us the character of the man at the very beginning of the story. The word Scrooge actually means to squeeze. And Scrooge did everything that he could to squeeze every last penny out of everyone he met. But his first name, Ebenezer, well, it means something entirely different. The word Ebenezer, it comes from Hebrew, and it literally means a stone of help. And it comes from 1 Samuel chapter 7. In this story, the prophet Samuel sets up a stone to commemorate the help that the Lord has given to the people of Israel. So the word Ebenezer refers to a place of worship. So let me ask you again, do you want to be an Ebenezer or do you want to be a Scrooge? Do you want to be an Ebenezer or do you want to be a Scrooge? Do you want to keep Christmas by worshiping God or do you want to cancel Christmas and only worry about yourself. Now, I hope that you'll choose to be like the Magi. I hope that you'll choose to be an Ebenezer. I hope that you'll choose to make God the center of your life. I hope that you'll choose to keep Christmas. I hope that you'll choose to make sure that the good news of Christmas isn't canceled. But it's a choice that you have to make. Who will be the center of your life? Will you be the center of your life? Or will God be the center of your life? Will you be an Ebenezer? Or will you be a Scrooge? Let's pray together. God, as we come to you in this time of prayer, you know that we are now a couple of days past Christmas. And God, it seems like whenever we get a few days removed from Christmas, we move past Christmas. We forget about it, we put it on the back burner, and we won't think about it again until November rolls around next year, God. But that's not how we're supposed to live. 
The story of Christmas is supposed to change us every bit as much as Scrooge's encounter with those three ghosts changed him. So God, let us be transformed by the story and the good news that you entered into this world is Jesus Christ. Let us always remember that, God, and let us keep the message of Christmas in our hearts all year long. Let us always put you first and ourselves last. Let us share your good news with all that we meet. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hey, it's Adam again, and I just want to thank you for tuning in to this episode of our sermon podcast. And I hope that today's episode has challenged you to find ways to keep Christmas, not just in the month of December, but throughout the year. Because Christmas really does tell us the good news of a God who loved us so much that he entered into this world so that nothing can separate us from him. Now, next Sunday is the first Sunday in a brand new year, and we are starting into a brand new sermon series where we're going to be talking about how we can follow the way of Jesus in the new year. So we hope that you'll come back and join us next Sunday when that episode drops. As always, if you subscribe to our podcast, it'll be sent straight to your favorite podcasting app. And I also want to invite you to come and worship with us whenever you can on Sunday mornings. You can worship with us online on our church's website at mhbclouisville.com. Well, I hope that you guys have a great week this week and a very happy new year, and we'll see you back here next Sunday for another sermon podcast.